hope you would turn your attention with me to the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew as we consider this text and this passage that we've been going through for some time now. This is after Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, declaring openly that he is the Messiah that the Jews have long waited for. This is shortly, uh, just days before his crucifixion, at the very end of his public ministry. He then comes into the temple and he begins to be questioned, not sincerely, but question in order to trap him in his words. And we come to a text this morning that is the third of three questions that the religious leaders sought to trip him up. And we now begin reading at verse 34, begin down through verse 40. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him and saying, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Our Father in heaven, as we contemplate this greatest commandment that our Lord clarified for us. We pray that the Spirit of God would empower the words of his text and that we could hear our Savior, the great prophet, speak to our hearts this day. And we pray that you would work out in us and through us of your good will to do of your good pleasure to bring you glory through your love working in us in obedience to the gospel. And we pray that you would square us up with the truth and the truth would set us free and that we might know the abundance of your fruit in our lives as we consider this text this morning. And so pour your spirit fresh out upon the preacher and upon the the hearers, that we all might hear the voice of God and, and delight in doing your holy will. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As mentioned, this is the third of three questions that the religious leaders came asking Jesus in this particular context. And here comes a lawyer a champion of the Pharisees who we see from Mark's gospel of the same account that when Jesus gave the answer, this lawyer then commends Jesus on the answer. Matthew doesn't give us that particular script. But as the lawyer commended Jesus and affirmed him in his answer that he gave, his spirit was far from the very knowledge that he had. It was far from agreement. 
So while his mind and his words could agree, his life was not in conformity to it. And the irony here, as well as for our own lives, is that we often have the right theological answers, but we live so very far from them in compliance with our own lives. Our orthopraxis is so far removed from our orthodoxy. Now, there are a lot of people in the church, like this lawyer, who know the right theological answers, but whose heart is far from humbling themselves and admitting their failures and casting themselves upon the mercy of God in Christ, professing Christians where there is no genuine humility, no brokenness for sin, where there is no contrite heart, There is no poverty of spirit, no mourning for sin in their lives, where there is no real gospel life. This morning we are considering the greatest commandment that God has given to us, that Jesus clarified for us, and he answered rightly, and we know he did, but is our heart yearning? to be in conformity to it. And so the question is, what is the greatest commandment? The Jews in the day that Jesus was ministering had then come up with and summarized 613 laws. They described some of these laws as being heavier and some lighter. These are the words that they used And Jesus would then pick up upon that in the next chapter when he speaks about the weightier matters of the law. But of all 613, which would be the greatest? So the Pharisees send out their champion to test Jesus and see what he would say. And the Lord says, this is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love your neighbor as yourself. On these two hang all of the law and the prophets. And Jesus began answering what is the greatest commandment by quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5, a text that we read every Lord's Day. It is the single most important passage in Judaism. It comes from that section that begins in Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the word here is the word shemang or shemang, and it's the word from which we then get shema. This is the great text, the shema. And when you see Jews with their phylacteries and the little boxes that they have with leather straps around their arms and boxes on their foreheads here, this is the text, the shema that they have in those boxes. 
This is the first text a Jewish child commits to memory. The Shema was an integral part of the Jewish life and liturgy. This was what was coupled with other prayers, and it's how the Jew opened his day, and it's how he closed the day. And he had this liturgy that was morning and evening, even based from the text, when you lie down and when you rise up from the very text itself. The Shema contains in it a profession of faith, a declaration of the allegiance to the kingdom of God, and a symbolic representation of a total devotion to the study of the Torah, which is the law of God, the Pentateuch, the first five books of our Old Testament. In other words, it was symbolic in the sense that it represented the entire Torah life. The Shema text that Jesus quotes reminds us here that the rhythm of all of our existence, that morning and evening, when you rise up, when you lie down, the rhythm, the beat of life. And throughout all of our duties, and through all of our life, and all of our religious devotion to God, is this all-encompassing life, motivated by love. All of our heart, mind, and strength, everything that I do, I am doing out of devotion to the Lord, and the thing that is fueling that is my love for Him. That's what's behind Deuteronomy 6.5. That is the greatest commandment. But without hardly taking a breath and skipping a beat, he moves right on and he extends that even beyond and he says, and the second is likened to it. You have to turn that love for him toward your neighbor. And he quotes here from Leviticus 19. And there's a couple of verses in Leviticus 19 that has the very quote that he gives. Verse 18 and verse 34. But from verse 34, he states, Love your neighbor as yourself, as it pertains to strangers who are living in and among the Israelites who had taken up residence in the land, but they were not a part of the Israelites. They were living peacefully with him. And that context in Leviticus 19 says, love them like yourself. So he gives us the greatest commandment, the second likened to it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I think before we move forward, I need to bring some clarity to what does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? If I were to ask you ladies here this morning, is the Lord demanding you to love with the same kind of love for your child's teacher or for your fellow Christian or for your state senator, 
or for the thug who snatched your purse in the parking lot yesterday that you have for your husband and for yourself, what would you say? And the scripture is not demanding that you have the same degree of love to everyone in life. So you're not going to love the stranger in the same degree and in the same way you love your own child. You're not going to leave the stranger your inheritance. What is it demanding then for you to love people in this way that you love yourself? And what that means is that you have the same kind of love for people that we would want them to have for us if the roles were reversed. Another way of saying that is, you are to do unto others as you would want them to do unto you. So let me flesh this out a little bit more. If you were to take your family to a restaurant and you had a waiter that waited upon your table, how would you love that waiter as you love yourself? Now reverse the roles for just a moment, and now you're the waiter waiting on your family. How would you want this family to love you when they paid the bill? What would be a blessing to you? What would be those expectations? Now get back into your role as the head of the family and love that waiter in the same way that you would love yourself if the roles were reversed. The waiter isn't expecting you to give him your entire inheritance that you would leave your children. He wouldn't expect that level of love. But if you were the waiter, you would expect him to love you like a waiter. Like you would wish to be loved if you were the waiter. And that's what you do on the other side of the table. You love him like you love yourself if the roles were reversed. Does that make sense? It's the same kind of thing in every relationship that you have. How do you want to be loved? That's then what you must do to love your neighbor as yourself. If you're a young person here, what do you expect of all the other young people in terms of the way that you want them to display their love toward you. Now reverse that, and you go and love them like you would yourself in those very ways. Make sense? You reverse the role, and then you go and do likewise. Our sinful nature wants us to focus on 
what do we expect of others and how they are to love us. And we stop at that point. And then we become an unloving, all-consuming sponge. But loving our neighbor as ourselves is to take your own expectation of how you want to be loved, and then you go love others that way. And let me add, be careful not to judge others and their love by your own measure. Allow them to love you as they would love themselves and not necessarily the way you would love them as yourself. There's charity here. There's an understanding. There's a a willingness to understand that their heart and their intentions are to love. If you're a visitor here in the service this morning, What kind of love would you be expecting from others? And however you would fill that out, whatever that means for you, is the way that you are to turn it around and then love your neighbor among us. What kind of love do you expect your pastor to give you? And then turn it around and then is that the kind of love you give to him? What kind of love would you expect for the state senator? And then turn that around. Is that what you're giving to him? Children, if you were for a moment, if you were the parent in your home, then what kind of love would you want your children to give to you? Now turn that around. And then you love your parents. Now what would I expect if I were the thug who snatched your purse in the parking lot this past week? What would be my expectation? Well, I wouldn't expect that you would show up at my door with a hot meal like you would for someone uh, who may be ill in our church or who just had a baby. That would certainly be a nice act of love, but that would not be my expectation. If I were a thug and I were caught and I showed up in court, I would expect a certain thing from you. I would expect justice, but I would hope for mercy. Even though I'm in no position to demand it, and in no way should I presume it. Now this is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments... The greatest and the second is likened to it. Hang all the law and the prophets. Now what he is getting at is that it's all summed up right there. But it's not like you're hanging it on two pegs. There's over 600 commandments and they all stem from a summary, if you will, of ten words. 
There's 10 words. I'm saying it in words because that's how the Old Testament would actually declare the Ten Commandments. You had two tablets. On one, we call the first table, which was the first four commandments. And that is the first four that delineates our relationship vertically with God. The second table is this of the last six commandments that delineate our relationship one to another. And it's not thinking about two pegs, one on which I could hang the first table and the other that I could hang the second table. We can't think of all of that in that way, but they are connected and they are inseparable. And this is the way Jesus answered the question about the greatest commandment and why he did not separate and the second from the first. I'd like to give you an illustration of this. This is not my illustration, but it's a good way to think about it. It was helpful to me. It's more like an attic ladder. Any of you know what I'm talking about? I have one in my home, and I actually had to install it. And it's, it's a ladder that's on a frame, and the frame gets mounted up into the ceiling. And when I pull it down, the frame is attached to the ceiling, but then the ladder is folded up upon itself. And then I can unfold the ladder pieces of the section, and then I can ascend up into my attic. You know what I'm talking about? Okay. So think about that kind of attic ladder attached to the frame, to the ceiling, and it's got two sections. The first section, which is attached to the ceiling that comes down first, is the one that has four rungs upon the ladder. And then the next section that comes down that reaches to the floor has six rungs upon it. And together, they make up that ladder that gets me into my attic. And when you consider how the, the, the ladder is attached to the ceiling, and then I consider how that second piece, that section with the six rungs, is attached to the four with a hinge and it comes down, I have to think about the commandments in that way. The six bottom rungs of the second section, which are a section by themselves, but inseparable and connected to the, the previous, ultimately hang on the way that the ladder itself is connected to the ceiling. And that's the way I have to think about this. All of the commandments hang from, they stem from these two commands but I can't think about those as two separate pegs. I have to think about them like this attic ladder. One is inseparably connected to the next, which is connected to the frame, which is connected to the ceiling. And so no matter what and how I think about it, Everything ultimately comes back to the one command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And every relationship that I have with my neighbor goes back first and foremost to that relationship I have with God. 
You've heard me say before that every relationship we have springs from the relationship we have with our God. Remember in Psalm 51 when David confessed his sin and you know the situation that brought about this particular psalm was his sin with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. And yet this is what was going on when he said in that confession against thee and thee only, Lord, have I sinned. And we'd stand back from that and say, what, what do you mean? Against God only. In fact, you coveted another man's wife. Then you stole her and you committed adultery with her. And then you acted deceptively to cover it all up. And then you murdered her husband. And somehow you probably violated the fifth commandment in the process as well. And while breaking every one of the six commandments on the last table, he traced it all right back. Ultimately, his sin was against God. It all comes back to his love ultimately to God. And that's why ultimately all your relationships stem back to your love for God, every one of them. The second commandment is just an extension of the first. It brings the ladder down to where you reach it, see. And ultimately, the relationship is to God and Him alone. Love for God leads to right responses to everyone else. Now, there was another incident in Luke 10. It's, it's a different incident, but it sounds very similar. You have another lawyer coming to Jesus, and it says a certain lawyer stood up and tested him. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus asked the lawyer, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And so the lawyer turns around to Jesus and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbors yourself. And then Jesus said, you answered rightly. If you do this, you will live. And that's an answer to the teacher or the, the lawyer's question, how can I have eternal life? And Jesus said, you do this, you'll live. This is how you have eternal life. This is the answer right there. He, he was saying, if you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbors, yourself, you have, you will have eternal life. You will experience it. This is what living is. The lawyer wanting to justify himself then carries it one step further. He goes, well, who is my neighbor? And this is the context where Jesus then describes and tells him the story of the Good Samaritan. That Samaritan, he's your neighbor. Now, as the Samaritan was the demonstration of loving his neighbor as himself, the Samaritan wasn't expecting to have to give the man on the side of the road beaten and, and robbed his entire inheritance, but he was loving him as he loved himself. 
In Mark's gospel, Mark writes on this very same incident. I referenced it at the beginning of the message. Lawyer comes, and, and the incident that I'm referring to in Mark is the same one we have in, before us in Matthew 22, where they were testing him. And when Jesus answered the question, the lawyer in turn then tells him, you have answered rightly to Jesus. He affirmed Jesus' answer. Yep. And he says, and to love him with all your heart, and with all your understanding, and all your soul, and all your strength, and you love your neighbors as yourself, is more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And the lawyer understood this. And Jesus answered and said, you answered wisely. You are not far from the kingdom of God. Now, all these things, all the commands of the Pentateuch, of the Torah, come down to this very fine point when Jesus can say to someone, if you answer this question to have eternal life with keeping these two commandments, you will live forever. And to another man who comes and approves of Jesus' answer, he can say, yes, you are not far from the kingdom. And what we have here is we are informed by God himself what is our greatest duty to him. The greatest command that we have from all of scripture. And one day everyone will stand before God in the judgment. And every word that we spoke will have been taken into account. And all the secrets of our heart will be laid bare before the great judge. And the biggest thing in that moment, did you love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? That's the question. How much did you love me? How much did you love? Even all of our worship done in separation from that love is sin. Every good deed that we have done and can do and ever will do apart from being motivated by pure love for God is sin. All of our righteousnesses are but filthy rags, the prophet would say. You know, what if your spouse did all the right things but was devoid of any love in the relationship with you? If your wife washed your clothes, prepared your meals, had it on the table just in time, did all those right things, but there was no love, what good is that? Or your husband worked hard, he led the family and family worship, but there was no genuine selfless love for you. What good is that? See, it's a fair question for God to say that. It's a good question for him to ask us. Do you love him with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength? With your very being and with everything. Now, how do you really know if you love somebody? If you had to write down a few of the evidences, how do I know that I love somebody? What would be your list? 
that would help you? What would you judge that to be? One of the things that perhaps you might write is, does whatever I love, right? Does it fill my mind? I think about it all the time. Those things I love fills my mind. It fills my thoughts and my energy and my time. These are the things I meditate on during the day. I daydream about it in class. I go to bed at night and I'm thinking about it as I go to bed and I'm hoping I'm going to dream about it in the middle of the night when I am dreaming. What are the things that fills your mind? Fills your imagination. You like to explore the different things about it. What are the things that you give your time to, your energy to, your resources to pursue? And then maybe get disappointed or perhaps even angry when something stands in the way of you getting more of that. Or something interferes with that. Is there any kind of beauty in this world that you find very attractive in anything or any person that you would enjoy more than God, that you find more attractive than God, that you would be filled with your mind more than God. You love that person or that thing or whatever it is more than God. Is there anything that you, this morning, love more than God? What's the answer to that question? And the answer to that question, and you know deep down inside, is yes, you do. To our shame, we all do. And that is our chief problem. That is our big problem. The things we are enthusiastic about, the things we set our affection upon more than we do our Creator. See, I am in such fallenness and with such great fault that the truth that Jesus laid out for us all here should convict us of our sin. To inform me of God's greatest command to me is to love him more than anything else. And it is to my shame that I do not. I should slump in my seat, cause my head to bow, and my heart should be broken over that very fact that this is not true of me. 
to convict me of my sinfulness. See, God said He is to be the affectionate object of all of my powers and all of my faculties. Morning and evening, morning and evening, and throughout the whole day. To love Him more than anything else, to love Him more than my mom and dad and my husband and my, my wife and my children and any other relationship. You often ask somebody who you're, does not know the Lord, and you begin talking to them about their relationship with God, and oftentimes they excuse themselves with what they think might be the greatest commandment. You ever heard this? Well, I, I haven't murdered anybody. Therefore, they justify themselves, then I must be somewhat okay. In their minds, they put murder as the chief commandment. Others might put murder and something like adultery. I've been faithful to my wife, and and I haven't murdered anybody. Therefore, I'm good. Actually, that comes pretty far down on the list, on the rungs of the ladder. No, it's to love God with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And not to do so is the greatest sin that we can commit. Now, why is God so jealous this way? In many ways, we're not jealous for one another in this way. A a passion for everybody to love me in the very same way that they would love their their nearest and dearest family members. That's not how we think. So why does God feel this way? And he feels this way for every single human being that he has made. Augustine wrestled with this. He said, "What, what am I... To you, that you command me to love you. And if I fail to love you, then you are angry with me and threaten me with vast miseries. This was his question. What am I to you? And the scripture tells us in multiple occasions, all things are made by him and for him. And we are made for the glory of God. We are his creatures in whom he delights. And when he made us in the beginning, that's when he first loved us. You are my created being. I made you for myself. You are the chief among all of the earthly creatures. You bear my image in you. This is what I've done for you. And if we bow to anything else before God and give our affections more so to those other things or other people more than the God who created us, then we are breaking the first and foremost commandment, and by that we are breaking them all. We have nothing to even ascend up into the ceiling. There is nothing there to hold the remainder.
See, everything is attached to this first commandment, which is attached to the frame up there. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall have no other gods before me, no other affections that then take place over the affection and the delight and the beauty and the attraction and the consuming thoughts of our minds than the Lord God, creator and redeemer himself. That is our first and foremost duty, to love him chiefly with all of our faculties. You cannot love music more than you love God. You cannot love any kind of music, even sacred music, more than you love God. You can't love your movies. You can't love your novels or your books. You can't love theology more than you love God. You can't love food. You can't love any material possession, any experience like traveling or even social fellowship with other people more than you love God. You can't love sensuality and sex more than you love God. You can't love fame and popularity or positions and status, not even your own closest family members more than you love God or your guilt. of the greatest sin that God has told us. God alone. Love God with all of your heart. And God made us for himself, and he made us also to be a love gift for his son. And Jesus is always asking the impossible of us to love God with all of you every moment of your existence and your neighbor as yourself. And from that, you should see that you need a Savior. I can't do that for a month. I can't do that for a week. I can't even do that for a single day. I can't do that for the very hour that we're in here. Much less a lifetime. How terrible, terribly short I fall of this greatest commandment on a daily and frequent basis. And I need my Savior every hour, every saving day, turning to him all the time and depending on him for what he commands of me. This commandment has not changed. It is still true for you and me this day. This is God's expectation of us. Do you think that Jesus demands of people things that are impossible for them to give him? Do you believe that? That's a theological point of which many people disagree with today. But not only does Jesus command you to do things that are impossible for you to give God today, God demands that of every human being every single day, 
to give him that thing that is impossible for them to give. To love him supremely with all of their time, to love the neighbor as themselves, and that is why you and I need a Savior right now. He says if you can do this, you will live. If you can love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and your neighbor and yourself, you will have eternal life. And what is the chance that lawyer had in achieving that objective? Absolutely none. It was completely impossible in his fallen nature to do so. And that is why Jesus lives. That is why Jesus went to the cross That is why he was resurrected three days later. That's why he ascended up on high and sits at the right hand of God the Father interceding for you. That is why you must abide in him because he says, I have completed it all. I am the fulfillment of the entirety of the law of God. And me living in you will accomplish that of which is impossible for you, but it is that which will be accomplished to the glory of God In you and through you, he does his perfect work. It is Christ who lives in me. And if Christ is not living in me, you are not loving him. You are not loving your neighbor. You simply cannot do the impossible. And that's why it's important for you and me right now to abide in Christ as he abides in us. And to yield our lives to the Spirit of God to, so he can bring forth that love which sits at the head of the fruit of the Spirit. Which we have a whole chapter in 1 Corinthians 13. And let this love of God flow through us like the life-giving sap of a vine flowing into the branches and bringing forth its fruit into the lives of others and to the glory of God, that we in Christ have this fulfilled in us, that we do love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength in Christ, but certainly not of ourselves. We can love our neighbor as ourselves in Christ, let him do this, but not of our strength of ourselves. And so it should cause us to beat our chest and ask for God's mercy upon us as we cast ourselves once again upon his grace, as we trust in the gospel life, knowing that we cannot do this, but oh God, give me the grace to love my neighbor as myself and to love you purely and sincerely from a heart that is genuine and pure. And now may my praise be without fault. Let's pray. Our Father, as our Lord answered with such clarity and precision, summing up the entirety of the law and the prophets in two short sentences, we contemplate this day how far we fall short of this greatest duty that we have to our Creator and our God. And we pray your Spirit would convict us of our sin where we have failed to love you and love our neighbor as ourself. 
We pray you would square us up with the truth. And we pray that Christ would dwell in us fully and richly. That it would be Christ himself who lives in us, fulfilling the law which is demanded upon us. But in him, we can walk and live and move and have our being. And we can rest in his perfection. And Lord, we pray that as this righteousness of Christ has been imputed to us, to justify us, would now be working in the power of your spirit who raised up Christ from the dead to bring forth the righteousness out of our hearts and to the glory of God in the way we love you and our neighbor. May it be so, we pray. Apply the gospel to us this day, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.